Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. Now, we might be coming to the end of another amazing year. In fact, it has been an amazing year because this is episode 130. Would you believe it? We're now powered by Transform Performance International. We are globally ranked. We're ranked number one in the UK by Feedspot. And look at this, ladies and gentlemen, would you believe it? Leadership Podcast of the Year. 2022. I love it. It'll sit there, Chris, for this particular episode. And I'm looking forward, as always, to every episode, but this one in particular. Because come back to me just after this break, we'll be talking to the wonderful Chris Finney, who has a story to tell. And part of that story, he is the youngest ever soldier to be awarded the George Cross, which is one of the highest accolades that the British government can give to anyone. You need to hear this story. Come back to me just after this. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, powered by Transform Performance International, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Hi, and it's a warm welcome to Chris Finney. Chris, welcome to the Leadership Enigma podcast. How are you, my friend? Yeah, all good, thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to this particular story. So there is a story, and I've just given it a little bit of a headline there in relation to the youngest ever soldier to receive the George Cross. Just help listeners right now, because I had to do a little bit of research as well here, Chris. Just tell us a little bit about the George Cross, would you? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So the George Cross uh, was instituted in 1940 by King George VI. And uh, what he found was, of course, um, there was the Victoria Cross was already uh, in existence, came about in 1856. And what he found... Uh, through sort of the war years, was there was a lot of uh, gallantry being being shown sort of on the home front, bomb disposal people, um, ho- you know, home guard, all these all these incredible things that didn't qualify for a Victoria Cross. The Victoria Cross can only be awarded in the face of the enemy, right. um, and and so he instituted, uh, named after himself, the George Cross in September 1940. So and it and it sits it ranks equally with the Victoria Cross, yeah, which is incredible, isn't it? So I want to go, I always use this phrase, backwards to go uh, forwards. You're a young chap. Well, certainly younger than me, Chris. We'll leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> but you actually went into the army early, I think. Didn't you become an army cadet initially? Yeah, yeah. I joined the army cadets when I was 13. Um, best thing I could have done, quite frankly. Um, I, 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 Obviously, I went to school. I turned up to school. But if I'm honest, I didn't really, I didn't really take it all that seriously. I used it as more of a, a social um bit of a social time really so i joined the army cadets at 13 with my best mate ben uh, and him and i decided quite quickly wow this is great you know we can uh, go running around and get muddy and play with rifles and things um and so we decided at that point well this is what we're going to do so he decided he was going to join the royal marines when he when the time came and i was going to join the army um so we spent a few years in army cadets it was, it was fantastic great great um great organization still is a great organization to be a part of if you're a young person um 
And so when I was six, my mate, he waited till he was 18 because um, he was going to go off and do commando training. So he felt he needed those extra couple did, of years. To... Did, did he do that, Chris? Did he go to Limpstone, Devon and, and do the... Yeah, he did, command? yeah. Right. He did. He, uh, he's, he's still in, actually. So I think he's got one year left and then he's he's done. Yeah, he's a warrant officer now. So uh, fair play to him. Well, he, uh, we, yeah, well that's did. a bit of a shout out for him then. And thank you very much for your service, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I joined at 16. Yeah. Um, I, I've been ex- so I signed up at the the youngest you can possibly be, which is 15 years and nine months old. Um, and so, consequently, if I'm honest, I didn't I didn't maybe take my GCSEs quite as serious as I should have, um, because you know at 15, hey, I've been accepted into the army. That's the rest of my life. I don't need to think about anything else. Of course, I don't. Uh, <laughs> so, with with hindsight, perhaps I should have still cracked on with that. But but anyway, there how, we are. How was the family so, with that? Fifteen years, nine months. I mean, that's the ultimate. You're going to the school of life for sure by joining the British Army. How was yeah. the family with that decision at that tender age? Um, honestly. Uh, I'm not sure it was maybe what they what they wanted for me, but I had nothing but support. I have to say, no one no one kind of tried to talk me out of it or anything. So they're very supportive. And actually, what I did, so you sign up at 15 and nine months, and you actually go go off when you're 16 to, or I went to the Army Foundation College up in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. Yep, I know it. Um, <clears throat> and so I spent a year there. So so perhaps that was the trade off in their minds that I was going to to a, a college of, of sorts and, um, you know, doing a few MVQs and whatnot for what it's worth. Um, but actually it was, that was a really good sort of year. And I think it's a really good place to go just because you do do your military training, but there is an element of, uh, you can only go there if you're 16 to 17 in a couple of months or something. So everyone's kind of the same age in a, in the very similar boat. Right. Um, and, and everyone kind of just grows up a bit and, and learns how, how the world works when you're, sort of not at home under your mother's wing. Well, you're very much alone at that point, aren't you? Do you remember, was mm. there a real big aha or, or learning moment for you at the tender age of 16, now living away from home within the very disciplined environment of uh, the army and looking forward to a career as a serving soldier? Did, do you remember any kind of aha moment or realisation at that young age? Um, not kind of one specific moment, but, but what I did realise quite quickly is no one cares if you're... Um, you know, if you're not feeling it today, not no one cares. I don't mean that. There's still a job to be done. You're not, uh, you know, I was still obviously friends with people I'd gone to school with that by now we're in sixth form. Right. And on a day like today, I look outside, it's minus three. They might say, um, Christ, cold out there. Uh, yeah, I think I'll uh, give sixth form a swerve today. I think, I'm, I think my mates... son might have done that on Monday, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, me and my mates were there in North Yorkshire breaking the ice to go and uh, to go and run through rivers and things. Right. And so I learned I learned quite quickly there um, that that if a job needs doing, then hey, we're going to get it done. And and I say this to I, I still say it now. I said this to my mate. I, I still go to the gym, and um, uh, I was in there at six o'clock this morning, and I still cold shower every day. And he, and, and and I've been a little bit under the weather. I've not been terribly ill or anything, but you know, not feeling hundred percent. And he said, "Why the hell are you here? What are you doing?" I said, because I'm not motivated at all, but I think what everyone needs, you don't need, motivation is great, but you don't need that. What you need is discipline. And if you're disciplined enough to still turn up, get up and and, and show up and do these things, then you'll still go about that task because you're not always going to have motivation. So what you do always need is the discipline to turn up and at least give it your best shot. So it's discipline over motivation. And we will come on to that, Chris, because obviously, you you know, you are now... uh, 
outside of the the military in Civvy Street, if that is still the term. Uh, and certainly right. we'll come on to kind of, you know, what propelled you? How are you still disciplined in, in your livelihood now? But tell me a little bit about, obviously, you were at Harrogate at, at the tender age of 16, and you were therefore qualifying as a soldier. And am I right? Was it the, the armoured division? Did you go into the into that? Tell me where you ended up. Yeah, so I I, uh, I joined up actually. I was I was due to join up as a Coldstream Guardsman, but my uh, my section commander in training he was a household cavalryman, and he was an impressive guy, and yeah. uh, and I had a lot of time for him. And you don't actually sort of have to go firm on what unit you're joining until six months in, right? And and I thought you know an impressionable young guy. I thought, well, I want to be like him. Um, so I joined the household cavalry. So yeah, it's kind of it's the household cavalry and Royal Armoured Corps. If um if to be really technical, but yeah, you're right. It's um. Yeah, an armoured unit. Um, so I did my year there, got my got my uh, you know my MVQs and things, and, and learned to be as everyone says in phase one training. You learn to be a soldier first and foremost. So we, so we do all that weapon handling and yep. drill and all the, the basics. all the good stuff. <clears throat> yeah, um, a lot of making your bed and being shown how to shower. And <laughs> but, but this is the discipline again, though, isn't it? Chris, that's, that's what we're talking about. I mean, listen, everyone might say, hell, I know how to make my bed and how to shower. Well, do we? Do yeah. we in a disciplined way? I'm not so sure that we do. So, uh, you know, I'm... I was, I, I was, while we're on that, I was actually saying to my... I have three daughters, and I was saying to one of them the other day, they hadn't made their bed and things. And, and I said, do you know, the night... If we had a room inspection at, I don't know, six o'clock the next morning, um, well, I thought, Christ, if you want to get your room ready, you're going to have to get up very early, and you're going to have to do this. So what we used to do is actually get your room immaculate make your bed immaculately the night before yep. and sleep on the floor in a sleeping bag <laughs> and uh, so you've got this nice warm bed there and you just sleep on the floor because i need that to be perfect good to go in the morning how old are your um, kids chris uh, my kids now are 11, uh, 10 and 8. Yeah, they might well re- be rebelling against that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I'm just yeah. they, they will turn into teenagers, just saying. Uh, and that's from personal yeah, yeah. experience. That's, that's beginning. That's beginning. <laughs> but, but as we move forward, you know, you've gone through your basic training and you're starting to specialise and become more experienced. And, and then you end up going on, on operational duties, don't you, actually over to uh, Iraq. Yeah, so tell yeah. us a little bit about, about that deployment and who you were with and, and what was the nature of the deployment initially? Yeah, it was it was quite tricky. Um, so by now, so I'd done my phase two training and learned to operate an armoured vehicle uh, to drive it and, all, and uh, you know, some more trade-specific things. Um, and then I joined up with my regiment, the House of Cavalry in Windsor, yep. in, in January 2002. And then, of course, you'll remember, and it's, it's quite uh, sort of relevant at the minute, the fire strikes in the... The winter of 02 into into the beginning of 03 yeah so we had to cover those um just as there were murmurs of things going awry in the middle east and so we in between covering the fire strikes we were up in north london in regent's park barracks yep. we were based out of uh-huh. um and we were preparing to potentially go to war in the desert by going on exercise in Sennybridge in Brecon in Wales in winter. <laughs> and, um, so, so it was quite, they did a really good job actually. Certainly my unit did a really good job preparing us for something that realistically we didn't really know a, if it was going to come and B, if it did come, what it would look like. And yeah. so we just kind of had to feel our way into it really. I mean, I'm saying that as a, what I would have been at the time, I would have just been sort of turning 18. So wow. perhaps, well, I'm sure people above me maybe did know slightly more, but certainly for us, us lads on the ground, we, we were just going with the flow and, and just trying to pick up anything we could really. 
How do you feel? Um, let, let me just ask a question, and forgive me for interrupting there, Chris, because now okay. you're 18 years old, and look, I've got a 19-year-old a and a 16-year-old teenager. And, and how are you feeling at that point, knowing that you might be deployed into, you know, theatre, live theatre, where life is at risk? It, it, do you feel as if that's what you've been trained for? Or let's be honest, you're all human still and, and vulnerable. What is that feeling like? Is it in some way masked because you're, you're in a, a military unit or does the human element still come out with, hang on, what is about to happen to me? Um, no, uh, so at that point, uh, again, I can only really speak for myself yeah. and those guys that were immediately around me, but we were buzzing. We couldn't wait um, because we we hadn't been kind of, I don't want to say mentally damaged, but, you know, we had, we didn't have all these experiences that they now have. We didn't see uh, guys in our unit missing limbs or yeah. having these horrendous mental health episodes or, you know, or the, the worst and going to funerals every, every two minutes. So we were all kind of very wet behind the ears, very green. And actually... Um, we couldn't wait. At that point, we couldn't wait. It was uh, one big adventure. In some ways, you're at the start of your career, aren't you? And, you know, I, I try and draw comparisons if we think about it, you know, just the very young squad that's, that for England has gone out to the World Cup and is back mm. already, unfortunately. But again, at a tender age, a huge weight of, of a country on them. Now, I, get, I appreciate they're going into a, a very different arena, but I'm still trying to look at the comparisons there about when someone who is starting a career, how they prepare for something that they feel they're ready for or that they're passionate about, whatever that might be. Um, mm. Take me forward, because when were you actually deployed into uh, Iraq? Uh, so, so first we went to Kuwait on uh, Valentine's Day 2003. Right, um, okay. Well, we, we still weren't entirely sure, obviously, if we were going to be physically going into Iraq or not. So uh, we spent about a month in Kuwait and, uh, you know, just preparing preparing our vehicles to operate in the desert, uh, practicing navigation in the desert. Obviously, it's very different to Salisbury Plain or something. Um, and just getting used to how we were, getting acclimatized and all those kind of things. And then we actually crossed the border into Iraq on the 21st of March, 2003. Um, so my regiment is a, it's an armored reconnaissance regiment. So we sit at the front kind of the battle group and, and 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 kind of forge paths for the rest of the units to come through. So we were sort of right, oh God, I nearly said tip of the spear then. That's a very cringeworthy saying, but <laughs> we were right up the front anyway. But, but to be fair, you're right on the front line, aren't you? This is Iraq yeah. going into, am I right, you were headed towards Basra? or, or Yes. Uh, yeah, in in yeah, Basra. Yeah. Let me go to the, the incident itself because this is something that, I'm keen to hear from you, really. I, I know you may have told this story many times, but I, I just, I'm really curious, and I just want to listen really hard to this this story, just to start to hear maybe some of the the human centered leadership pieces, which is something I, I'm I'm really curious and passionate about. So take us to the incident itself, Chris, and just explain that to the listeners. Yeah. Okay. So this this on the 28th of March. So only a week. We'd only been wow. sort of in in Iraq for a week, and um. As I'm sure people saw in the news, you know, we were making these sort of lightning advances through Iraq. The resistance wasn't what people had expected necessarily. Yeah. And we were moving very quickly. And we got to a, a certain point where we had to now go and sort of recce three new routes for the for the rest of the battle groups to come through. Yeah. And so I was in two troop. And uh there was someone else obviously one troop to our left, three troops to our right, and we were moving through and snuggling along as they call it um we'd got to the end of our route and uh, not really seen an awful lot that was all fine and they said okay well could you go could you go over here and have a, have a look at this place as well yeah no problem and now we're really pushing forward we're we're really quite far forward 
and we were moving along very, very slowly. We came alongside a, a small kind of uh, village, is probably a bit too grandiose, a settlement, I'd right. say, um, to our right. And then we had the Chatelar waterway to our left, moving along this reasonably narrow piece of ground. Right. Um, very slow maybe five miles an hour, something like that. And so I'm driving uh, with my hatch down, so they call it. So with my seat dropped down, with my sort of hatch over my head, yeah. and I'm driving, look, looking through the, the driver's day site, essentially the sort of, same sort of size as a letterbox, really. Right. Uh, and um, driving along, no problem. I could, we can sort of see, uh, well, my commander's telling me, I can see an awful lot. See kids waving at us there from the village next to us, and okay, all right, but... Again, I can only speak for myself, but I just didn't feel comfortable. Like something wasn't right. Something was amiss. Uh, but on we go and we kept moving. And then all of a sudden from nowhere, as I say, I'm looking through this letterbox size uh, site and I'd see the, the greatest flash of light and a, and a whacking great bang. What the hell was that? And of course, the first thing you would you would assume had happened was uh, an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade, or something had hit us. We've been ambushed. We must have been. That's right. It's all that could have happened. Um, and so, where we where we operate recce vehicles, they're not heavily armoured at all. They're not they're not that heavily armed either. So the normal kind of default action would be to you reverse out, you or, or move backwards, see what happened, and then decide. Right? Do we go back? Do we come round? Do we? You know? Yeah. Select your next course of action. Um, and so I knew that's what we were going to do anyway, but my commander was shouting. I heard him over the, the radio, reverse, reverse. So, okay, put the vehicle into reverse. Unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, he was shouting that as he was climbing out of the vehicle. So I started reversing. These things are quick. A scimitar is quick. It has seven gears forward and seven gears reverse. So oh, wow. you can go equally, okay. equally as quick in reverse as it can forwards. So I'm going up through the gears in reverse. I later found out he's fallen off the side of the vehicle because he was starting to climb out as he's shouting reverse. So now I've got nobody to tell me. When you reverse, you can't see anything behind you. You don't have mirrors and things because obviously that would give your position away with shining lights. And So you wait, you rely on someone to tell you, go left, go right, stop, quicker, slow, you know. So of course he's gone. So I've not got these instructions. <laughs> so I'm just reversing when we get an- another almighty whack from the back. Yeah. And now I'm thinking, well, this is it. We've been hit from the rear as well. Right. Okay. And all this, this must've been, this must've been seconds. Yeah. Um, but in my head, I had really quite a long time to, Oh, bloody hell. What are we doing? Uh, so I can no longer hear my commander cause obviously he's gone, um, off the vehicle. My gunner, uh, Alan, he was, he was quite badly injured and I could hear kind of his, his cries of pain, shall we say over the, over the radio. And I, I so getting nothing coherent from him. And didn't really know an awful lot else. So okay, I've got to get out. The vehicle wouldn't move; it wouldn't go any further. Right. So uh, well, okay, well I've got to I've got to get out. So behind the driver's seat is where my rifle would be in a, in a small rack there. So I thought, well, I've got to get my rifle, and then I'll see what I can do. So I turn around, and the rifle that rifle out of that crate, uh, the the cage it has, is a pig to get out at the best of times. Right. But at this moment, with with the adrenaline going and all the rest, and then I look behind me and I see flames licking at it. I ah uh, no, I'm not hanging around to get that because <laughs> I might be some time. Um, so I open my hatch and I stood on on top of the vehicle on on the front decks as we call it, kind of where the engine bay is, yeah. and 
was obviously very hot, so I had my body armor open. Um, I had my helmet. I, I can. I'd never, even now, I'm not really sure why I did this, but of course, I was still plugged into the radio, and I knew I needed to get off the vehicle, so I could have just taken my helmet off. But for some reason, I took it off and threw it. I don't know why. Threw that off, and then I'm standing there thinking, right, I've no helmet. My body armor's open, and my rifle's in the vehicle, and we've just been ambushed. So someone around here doesn't <laughs> doesn't want me here. Yeah. Um, so I thought, Christ, I'm so exposed, I don't, and, and I can't see anybody. I don't know what's going on. I did see three guys running across across the or towards the river, I should say, um, and I had presumed they were the enemy that had ambushed us. Right. Well. Thank God I couldn't get my rifle out because it turned out they were actually three of my friends. Um, so who knows what might have happened there had I had my uh, my weapon. So perhaps that was a good thing that I, that I didn't have it. Um, so I jumped down the side of the vehicle, kind of in between the, the, the sand berm that, at the edge of the village, the settlement, and our vehicle. And I, and I thought, what the hell do I do now? The first thing I saw was the second bang that we'd had from the rear wasn't an RPG at all. When nobody had told me to stop, I'd reverse straight into the vehicle behind us. Right. <laughs> so I thought, right, okay, that's fine. That's one less thing that's happened that, uh, that I think. Um, and then and then I heard my friend Alan, the, my gunner, sort of shouting for help. And so I climbed up onto the side of the vehicle, sort of grabbed him quite roughly, um, and, and sort of dragged him down. He half jumped into my arms, half pulled him out, um, and he was in a he was in a bit of a bad way. He'd had a he'd had a thirty millimeter round straight through his thigh bone. Wow! Um, so he was in a bit of a mess, and he was saying to me, "Get my morphine." Get my so everyone had. I don't know whether it's whether they still do it now, but at the time, everyone had two uh, morphine syringes, uh, and you're only to use those on you you don't give yours to anybody else you right. use yours right and of course because if i need mine later then i'm stuck and so he's saying to me get my morphine get my morphine oh god and he lay on the ground and actually which way around was it i think it was his left leg had been smashed and and, and everyone's sop standard operation procedure was to have your morphine in your right leg pocket on the combat trousers right so where, of course, he didn't want to hurt his left leg anymore. He was lying on this flaming morphine, which turns out was a was a, another uh, piece of good fortune for him, really, because I couldn't get it. I was thinking, well, how do I get this morphine out of his pocket without hurting him or yeah. getting sand in it? And hey, oh, God, I need to keep it clean. And um, as I'm thinking that, the plane comes back again. And this is the first I knew it was a plane that had attacked us, and it was uh, an American A-10, which is otherwise known as a tank buster. So this was the first time you realised what, what was happening or had happened. So Correct. You're now describing Correct. Am I right in thinking this is friendly fire? Uh, yeah, it didn't feel very friendly, no. but yeah. But so. well, just, just, again, just the avoidance of doubt, just explain what, what we mean by that, Chris. Uh, so friendly fly, friend, friendly fire, also referred to as blue on blue, um, is, is when a, a friendly force shoots shoots at another you know any uh, allied forces shoot at one another that's that's deemed friendly fire okay um and that's what you'd be subjected to yeah correct yeah yeah from a from a um, fighter yeah wow. american uh, american air, air national guard right um from a yeah tank buster so a, a plane that's designed to kill people like me 
Um, and it actually turns out later, I'm, I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit here. Okay. The There was all the uproar later on about the British forces not having enough kit and all the rest of it. And we didn't have enough body armor and we didn't have enough this, that and the other. I'm told it turns out that was actually really fortunate because what we should have had was, uh, um, I can't remember what they called it even, but armor on the belly of the vehicle to to defend against mine strikes. Oh, right, yeah. And actually, I'm told, had we had that armor, as the 30 millimeter rounds from the plane hit our vehicle, the armor would have deflected it back into the vehicle. Oh, of course. Just, and don't go through the damage. Cabin. So actually, again, we were really fortunate that it just sliced straight through and into the ground. Um, okay. So the plane was coming around for a second time, and you now realised you were actually subject to friendly fire. Uh, you're helping your gunner there, who's who's quite critically injured from a uh, yeah. you know a, a significant round to the leg. What goes? Yeah. What happens from then, Chris? So from then, I thought, okay, right, this plane. I knew I knew what that plane was. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's quite lucky I knew what it was and what it probably had in mind. So I thought, right, I need to grab Alan here and get him out of the way. We just need to tuck him out of the way under the front of the vehicle or something, and and hopefully the the rounds from the plane will go over us and miss us miss us entirely. And so I grabbed him kind of by the the front of his his shirt there, yeah. and I turned and, and went to drag him. And then learn quite soon after that that I can't run faster than planes from a <laughs> bullets from a plane. Um, but actually, as I turned to pull him, I remember my, my kind of my arm shook where I was pulling him. Yeah. And then I and I and I felt a, what I thought was him grabbing at my right calf, and and I thought, oh, okay, I've, I must have hurt him, and he sort of grabbed out in pain. Um, well, I turned round, and. Alan had now been hit in the head, um, which I say it was lucky I couldn't get his morphine. You never give anyone morphine that has a head injury because that can be right. fatal. So, of course, I would had I been able to get that morphine, I'd be again done better thinking about. Uh, his arm was quite badly injured, also. Uh, I think he had something on his chest, but either way, he was a mess. And but alive. Well. Turns out, yes, he was. But at that point, I didn't think he was at all. I thought that's it. I thought he's dead. And wow. and it was only. And then at that moment, I thought, oh, "What the hell? I can feel something wet down my leg. What, what on earth's that?" Turns out, I'd had I'd been hit with shrapnel in my right calf, and that's what I thought. You know, when yeah. I thought he'd grabbed at my leg, it was actually shrapnel, and in my uh, <laughs> and in my backside. <laughs> um, it says on my citation later, very diplomatically, my lower back. But yeah, I can confirm it was my bum. So, so now, <laughs> so you're injured. You're yeah. helping what you now think is a a, a fatal yeah. incident with your friend. Um, yeah. but, but, it, but this incident continues, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. So I still hadn't really, uh, I still hadn't really seen anybody. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Again, you know, yeah. Just to remind you, I'm 18 years old here, uh-huh. and the driver who doesn't even really see the map, I just get told to turn left or right. Yeah. Um, I couldn't see anybody. And although my injuries weren't necessarily horrendous, certainly the one in my backside was bleeding quite a bit. And I thought, there's just nobody here. I'm just going to bleed out eventually. Um, and I was convinced Alan was dead. And unashamedly, I lay down next to him and I put my arm around him wow. and uh, sort of had a little cry. And I thought, well, that's my mate just died in front of me with nobody here. How, you know, what the hell is going on? This was meant to be a, this crazy adventure. And and here we are. And thankfully, I only let myself do that for sort of, I don't know, 20 seconds or so. Right, I need to do something. So I jumped up. Where I'd taken Alan off the vehicle, his headset and his radio, you know, 
all his radio headset and helmet was still hanging off the side of our vehicle. So I ran over back to the vehicle, which was now really cooking. It was on fire. All the ammunition uh, so within it was cooking off, making a right old fireworks display. And I put his headset on and jumped on the radio. My citation says I sent a lucid situation report. I saw um, that. I read that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm presuming you don't allow swearing on this podcast. But with, with, the, with a few expletives in it. I think you were allowed yeah, at that point. It, it, it was far from lucid. Right. Uh, but but no, I, I, I did. I, I shouted, you know, Alan's dead. You should never say names on the radio either. So straight away I'd broken that rule. Right. Alan's dead. I've been hit. Come and get us in. Bleep, bleep. Well, to be fair, that's pretty succinct and to the point, and, and probably does exactly what it was meant to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I did that. Okay, right. Um, and then the vehicle I'd reversed into, so the one immediately behind us, yep. I, I could hear a um, a terrible noise from there uh, of somebody in pain. And so I ran back to that vehicle also and climbed up the front of the vehicle. Yeah. And we opened the hatch, the top hatch on the turret, where my friend Matty Hull, who was the gunner of the vehicle behind. Right. And there was a guy from the engineers, the Royal Engineers, who'd sort of been at the back of our patrol, Sid Sindel. He came forward as well. He came to that one from the back. And we looked and the flames were, bear in mind, the vehicle's probably seven foot tall. Yeah. The flame, the flames were probably a further two or three foot from that, okay. and you, and you know all this ammunition cooking off, and and Sid said to me, if we try and get him, three people are going to die, and if we sadly walk away, it's that number's only going to be one. I said, right, okay, and 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 he, that was he was dead right. It sounds awful and brutal, and but it was completely true. And so I jumped down the side and I, I tapped the side of the vehicle and I said, Taramati, and um, yeah it was pretty horrendous and then after that we uh that was kind of it really we i didn't really know have a clue what to do my citation says i collapsed a short distance away I, if i'm honest i don't remember doing that but then i guess i wouldn't um and then the next thing on your a royal engineer was throwing me over his shoulder and they they threw us in the back of their vehicles and off we went um we, we waited for we'd been told we'd be picked up. If anything happened, before we went into Iraq, we were told if anything like that happened, we'd be picked up by American helicopters within, I don't know what they said, five or 10 minutes or something. Right. Anyway, half an hour later, a, a British helicopter turns up. So I don't know if that was, they didn't feel it was the right thing to do or right. I, I have no idea. But all I know, we, we got evacuated back to our own units, medics, um, who really, really did a good job. And then from there, we were moved out to the RFA Argus was uh, was moored up just in the Gulf there, which uh, which was a hospital ship. Stayed there for a few days and came home. Wow. So um, I'm going to ask, because people might be thinking this too, Alan was okay? Uh, yes, yeah, so in the end. So, yeah, sorry. He came onto the hospital ship with us, but he was on a separate ward. Right. And we had no idea. We just really didn't have a clue. what We, would, we had no information. Uh, in the end... We all flew back to Liverpool Hospital um, for sort of further treatment. I was only there a couple of days, to be honest. But he went down the road to I forget the name of the hospital now, but it was in Liverpool, uh, and he had quite quite severe brain damage. So he stayed in for some time, but he left. And yeah, no, he's alive now. He has a a couple of sons, and yeah, he's he's doing well. I mean, he has his he has his moments as we all do. But yeah, but but you know, uh, I couldn't believe it when they said he was alive. I was absolutely astounded and and that's thanks to you chris 
Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what he would have done. Yeah. And you mentioned Matty as well. Mm. It, he didn't make it, no? No, he didn't, no, really sadly. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I think as people are listening to this, it's it, it's an incredible and inspiring story. And let me just remind everybody, you're 18 years old mm. and and just into your tour. Uh, Chris, when did you know that you were being awarded the Jules Cross? Uh, it was sometime later. It was um, so, of course, the regiment was still there for the for another five months or so. So I came back to Windsor and was doing not a lot, really, just kind of filling time, I suppose. And I would, I'd, I'd hazard a guess, and I may be wrong. I would have said it was autumn of that year, right? Okay. Uh, and, what, and what they did. Apparently, and I, I don't know if this is true. I've been told if you're up for a medal like that, if you find out, then you're disqualified for it. They, they take, I'm not sure how true that is, right, but I've been okay. told that. Um, and so I remember, because I'm still a trooper, and there was a, a like a sergeant's mess dinner. And so the troopers traditionally go and act as waiters for that and, and whatnot. So, of course, I'm working on this, this do. And somebody said to me, somebody quite senior in my squadron said, Oh, you know, don't sort of let this go any further, but I think you might be up for a military cross. And I said, oh, okay, brilliant. Wow. Um, it's, it's fantastic. He said, you know, don't say anything. We don't. All right. Okay. And, and then I did. And I completely forgot about it, if I'm honest. Um, that was, that was kind of that. And then in, I think it was in October, actually. Yeah, I think it was October 03. Yeah. Um, my commanding officer, he said, they, they sort of called for me and I went down to his office. And I, f- I forget how the conversation started, but then he said, listen, uh, these awards are being announced tomorrow at the MOD. And he said, I can't tell you anything. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you that you may or may not right. be awarded a George Cross. Um, and I can't say at all whether or not you should maybe be outside my office here at nine o'clock <laughs> in your two dress waiting for a driver to take you to London. Um, because of course I just don't know that. <laughs> I said, right. Okay. I've got you. Okay. Um, and it was quite funny, actually the, the George Cross bit, it was a lot of people didn't know what it was and, and sadly still don't now. And that's, a, that's the job of our, our association, which maybe we'll go on to in a minute. Um, but I did for all those years in cadets. I remember there was a big poster on the wall of our sort of cadet detachment and with all the medals on there. And I knew the George Cross was a, was a big deal. And I thought, Christ, is that, is that really happening? I don't. And uh, and so the next morning, of course, I get down to his office at nine o'clock in my two dress, as in, as he didn't instruct me. That's right. And waited for the, waited for the driver that we didn't know was maybe coming or not. And uh, I went into his office, and he says, uh, uh, "Morning, Trooper Finney. I said, oh, "Morning, Colonel." He says, "Do you know why you're here?" I said, "I've got no idea, Colonel." You went, "You silly bugger! I told you yesterday." Yeah. <laughs> so right, right, got it. Thanks. <laughs> and, and am I right in thinking you were actually awarded the George Cross in early two thousand and four by yeah, uh, the late, yeah. uh, Queen Elizabeth? Is it, I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, correct. So first of all, it goes into the London Gazette, which was on the I believe the thirty first of October '03, which was what that was. Went to the MOD for the big sort of announcement, and then um, the uh, investiture itself was in. It's February '04. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, look, it's an incredible story, and I'm I'm very very grateful for you telling me that because you know tragedy actually is at the heart of the story too. And you know, again, I, I just want to say, and, and so as many listeners as well, it's just it's amazing. And thank you for 
what you've done and the service that that you've been through. Uh, it is quite incredible. And many people listening to this, really my ask of them is to, as you listen to this inspiring story, think yourself, what are some of the leadership lessons that you that you can hear, that you can sense? You know, how do we react to situations that are almost beyond our control? Many people will never have a life at risk situation, Chris, but, you know, still we're always trying to, to, to think about what the takeaways are. You know, if we, we move forward into to now, to today, you know, you're married with, with three daughters, as you say. Just tell everyone what you're doing now. And, and, and if you can, this might be the impossible question. Are there some leadership lessons that have served you well in your life now, which you think are from that incident or from that period of time in your life? Mm. Uh, yeah, so uh, my wife, um, she was also in the army, actually. She was a nurse in the army. Right. Um, and her and I, after we left at the same time in 2009, uh, we had, well, I had a bit a bit of a funny period. As, as I said at the beginning of this, I didn't exactly have the best education. I, I didn't join the army at 16 due to my yeah. academic prowess. So, <laughs> um, so I had to kind of do what I had to do. I spent a, a really interesting 12 months working with Joe Calzaghe, um, where we were trying to raise money for Health Heroes. I saw that. Um, Joe, now, just to help everyone, I, I know who Joe Calzaghe is, but just if anyone mm. doesn't, Joe Calzaghe is who? Uh, so he he was the undefeated uh, middleweight boxing champion of the world. Yes. 49-0, and 0, and, uh, and, a, and a lovely, lovely man to boot. He um, reached out to was, you, didn't he, I think? Yeah, that's right. I did do an interview. I, was, I did a bit, as I left the army, um, with a lady called Audrey Gillen. She was embedded with us in Iraq. She worked for the Guardian at the time. Okay. And she said all along, when you leave, I'd love, love to do a piece on on kind of your army career. Yeah. And so I did that. And, and actually, I'm not that proud of it, the, the story. N- nothing to do with Audrey or anything like that. I was just, um, I don't know, just maybe not quite right in my head at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I regret a few things I said in that. Well, you are human, Chris. Yeah. Um, but by the by, and uh, he saw that and he got his agent, uh, Paul Stratford, to, to kind of reach out and, and say, listen, we're Joe just retired. And so he was going to have his big retirement gala dinner. And he said, well, let's let's try and raise some money for Help Heroes. Wow. Would I like to come and be a part of that? And so, yeah, I jumped at the chance. Um, but that was only ever a fixed term contract. And Liz, my wife, we were living in Bournemouth at the time. She's from Cornwall originally yeah. and was desperate to come back here. I had got to the point where I thought I didn't have any, I didn't have any clear direct, well, no, I didn't have any clear direction, but I was quite clear that I would like to work for myself. Yeah. I want to do my own thing and sort of forge my own path and, and, and however, you know, whatever shape that takes and so be it. Um, and Liz actually, before she became a nurse and joined the army, had worked in garden centers and, and is a very good uh, plants woman, has a lot of knowledge on that kind of thing. Yeah. And actually is a very clever lady. And um, we found out uh, through somebody that, that the garden center that bizarrely she worked at before she became a nurse was yep. coming up for sale. And um, Liz's father knew the guy and said, well, I might be able to sort of broker a deal here if, you, if you're up for it. And, and so I said, well, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's go for it. Uh, oh, I said, I said it, we both said it. Um, and so we came down here in December 2010 uh, to, to take over in January 11. Yeah. And it actually timed really well with the with my contract with Joe ending. I, I ended up, as it turned out, I had a couple of weeks off and we and then we got straight to work. Um, and it was incredibly difficult. We When we took over, we inherited two members of staff. Um, the place was 
not great. It was run down with not an awful lot of stock. And it was January, which traditionally is the worst month of the year, I think, for everyone, but certainly for garden centres. Right. And, it, and it was bloody hard work. But where are we now in entrepreneurial life, Chris? Yeah, so now we still have that place, uh, 12 years, or it'll be 12 years next month. And then four years ago, we, we were able to buy a second place, um, not far, 20 minutes up the road. Um, and we now, so, you know, in comparison to some of your guests, we're still the, the, the most minute of businesses, but we now have a team of 51. Wow. Um, yeah, we've, we've grown it. We, we have an e-commerce website. We built that out. Uh, and we have a really, really good team. We've now, in our new place, we have the, uh, sort of a, the cafe within it. So that opens up another thing that we're not used to doing in the form of catering. Um, but, but no, it's great. And we really, really love it. And it's, um, depending on how you define success, as far as we can see, it is, is successful. We love doing it and we're able to work together. Chris, you've been forging your own path for many years. Let's be honest, you know, as you tell the story, and I, and I hear this in, in this kind of detail, you've been doing this since the age of 15, which is why you decided to go into the military. As people listen to this, and it may well be leaders of all ages, small, medium, large organizations, entrepreneurs, disruptors, startups, all kinds of things, what would be your standout advice to people on leadership, taking into account the experiences that you've had? And you are a business owner. You're responsible for the salaries of 51 people. That's, trust me, that's no mean feat in itself when the buck stops with you. And the progress that you've made, yeah, just is there a standout? What, what would be your advice to, to the power and importance of leadership in a world that's gone pretty mad? Um, well, I think... As I keep, as I said at the beginning, discipline. Discipline is so important in everything you do. Um, you know, personal discipline, and also in how you run a business. And certainly in Cornwall, we get a lot of people who come down to to live the dream. And you know, they they visited in summer when it's glorious <laughs> and warm, and they've had a couple of pints of scrumpy on the beach. And hey, isn't everything wonderful? And so they sell up and come down here. They maybe make a few quid, and then they buy a a brand new. Uh, Range Rover, Porsche, and they and they they've got a fancy watch on, and they and then actually within six, twelve, eighteen months, realise oh, that's not real, and then they're struggling. So, so discipline in in every sense of the word, really, the discipline to not go wild as soon as you um, start heading towards whatever it is you think is success, but to actually stay grounded, stay stay really grounded, stay humble, be disciplined enough to turn up and do the awful jobs every day, um, you know. Be hard on yourself, not be hard on yourself, but be be honest enough with yourself that yeah. you've got to go and work. You've got to turn up and show up and, and get the work done. And also, I think fundamentally, just being a, a good person will take you a long way. Um, I ha- I won't name names or even suggest where they were, but I've worked with people that really showed me how not to do business just by being so blinded by chasing a pound note that actually you've lost sight of everything and, and all of a sudden your team can't stand to be around you and, and, and without your team, you actually have nothing, I would suggest. I mean, Chris, do you do you realise what kind of role model that you are for so many people in relation to the experience that you've gone through? You'd probably rather you had never had that experience. But in many yeah, ways, I mean, if you I'd, tell I'd this story, it's, you know, every leader casts a shadow. Uh, not only do you cast a shadow to the 51 people that you leave, but also, Chris, you will cast a shadow as you tell this story. So in some ways, I just want to say a massive thank you 
for taking the time to tell that particular story. But I've got another question, which might be unfair. What would be your advice to your 15-year-old self at that moment you decide to join the military? Would, would you give yourself some different or, or updated advice now? I would say, listen in school. <laughs> Go to school. <laughs> and, and, and actually, I was talking to uh, to my daughter's school. She's in secondary school now. Yeah. They got me in the other day amongst you know one or two others to speak about entrepreneurship and uh so, so it's kind of a double-edged message, isn't it? That sit and do your work, listen in school, because this stuff does matter later. It may not seem relevant now necessarily, but oh, even in school, in my IT lessons, they showed us Excel. What the hell do I need? When am I ever going to use Excel? Turns out every day. Um, so <laughs> so I've, since, I've since had to reteach myself that. Um, but also, also what I tried to certainly tell the guys that were in school the other day um, if you don't do all that well, don't worry about it. Yeah. You, there's still other opportunities will turn up. You, as long as you're disciplined and you put in the hard work, you can still you can still make this work. Um, and and so I would probably tell myself, pin your ears back, listen in school, and then go for it. Be be a bit more sure of yourself and just go for it. Um, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything I did. I'd just maybe do it slightly better. No, I, lo- I love that. And, and I hope this is an inspiring episode for all the young leaders that might be listening to. Listen, Chris, you've been a superstar for coming in and telling uh, this story. I appreciate it. It's inspiring. It, this is one of those that I, I'm really, I think it's a real privilege, which is why we do the podcast, that we get to talk to people with amazing stories to tell. And it's for people to understand and try and work out what are the leadership dimensions to that. And Chris, I think we really have to dedicate this episode to all the men and women who, who are still in live theatre and certainly have served this country uh, so admirably, you certainly being one of them. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the Leadership Enigma, Chris. Lovely. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank Take you. great care and have a great festive break. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers now. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or visit the dedicated website, www.leadersenigma.com, powered by Transform Performance International, where you can access our exclusive learning, including books, videos, bonus content, assessments, and more. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.